This is the Zen Nova Scotia podcast with talks by Cohen Franz. If you would like to support and be part of our community, you can start by visiting zennovascotia.com. A basic part of the story of the Buddha is his discovery of, of what we call the middle way or the middle path. And the very short version of this is that he was raised in an opulent and decadent setting with everything he could ever want at arm's reach. Never denied anything at all. He won the lottery ten times over. And people could only speak to him of positive things and it's actually kind of creepy, but it you might have days when you think you want that. When you see the advertisement for some sort of spa, you know, you think, I'd like to be pampered a lot. That was his life. And that as part of his departure from that life, he felt this calling toward the models of spiritual practice that he saw around him, which involved ascetic practice. So he went into the hills, he went into the forests, and outdid everybody, or so the story goes. He was, uh, maybe he had a little bit of a, an obsessive personality, I'm not sure. But he didn't just meditate for days on end, but he meditated for days on end on top of piles of thorns, naked, taking only a grain of rice a day until he was emaciated. And you can imagine how, on the one hand, that's a very body-denying and painful life. And on the other hand, how there's always probably this sense of victory. You know, there's a battle that you're in with desire and every time you deny yourself something, it's, it's a kind of win, right? It's a very confusing thing to do to yourself. But the story goes that after seeing the extreme life of comfort and the extreme life of self-inflicted pain, that he came to the conclusion that it had to be that the true path was was a middle way. It was something that was not too tight and not too loose. I think before we get into this conversation tonight, if we're starting with this story, there's something to acknowledge, which is that what the Buddha did, he did from a position of great privilege. Right? So on one hand, it would seem that he explored the, the far ends of the spectrum. But, but even when he was over here on this side, denying himself any tiny hint of pleasure, that was something that he chose. He could always walk away, and ultimately he did. That's very different from someone who cannot walk away or does not know how. 
that's a little off track, but I think it's worth mentioning. He was doing an experiment. And I think that that's common when people take up a spiritual practice. I know that when I did, when I first discovered Buddhism, one of the first things I did was I stopped sleeping on a bed because I kept reading these these texts that were based on the Vinaya, on the old monastic rules. And they seemed to be just obsessed with this question of the height of your bed. Say, do not sleep on a high bed. And I thought, well, this is important. So I started sleeping on the floor, and I did that for a long time. And along the way, I think, for a long time, I equated spiritual practice with that kind of experimentation with my life. Denying myself things. Testing things. Seeing what I could do. Seeing what I could do without. I don't think I'm the only one. Today we continue with the eight awakenings of great beings. And as I explained last week, for anyone who missed, this word great being, the way that it's written in Chinese, happens to be exactly the way that the word adult is written as well. So we have to understand this, not just as the eight awakenings of great beings, but the eight things that you wake up to in the process of becoming a true adult. And last week we talked about having few desires. And this week we have the second awakening. The second awakening is to know how much is enough. Even if you already have something, you set a limit for yourself for using it. So you should know how much is enough. That's Dogen's little intro. And then we get to the Buddha's words. The Buddha said, Monks, if you want to be free from suffering, you should contemplate knowing how much is enough. He doesn't exactly say you need to know how much is enough. He makes it one step removed. He said you should contemplate knowing how much is enough. You should think about this. You should consider what this might be. You should make it a priority to investigate how much is enough. And by extension, how much is too much and how much is insufficient. By knowing it, he says, you are in the place of enjoyment and peacefulness. Already. Automatically. By knowing it, by knowing how much is enough, you are in the place of enjoyment and peacefulness. He doesn't say by having just the right amount, you're happy. He says, by knowing what that is, you're happy. It 
it's a kind of letting go. If you know how much is enough, you are contented even when you sleep on the ground. What he's saying, I think, is very straightforward. How much is enough? This much is enough. What's in front of you is enough. If you know how much is enough, you're contented right now. It doesn't allow for a possibility that you might not have enough. Or that there might not be enough. This is it. If you don't know it, if you don't know how much is enough, you are discontented even when you are in heaven. And this is how we live. I have a good friend who, uh, he was my roommate years ago, and his joke always was, it's comfortable, but it's not comfortable enough. (laughs) And we would always laugh about that. Because if it's comfortable, it's comfortable. Either it's comfortable or it's not. But this is the mind that we apply to everything. The first time I got a a phone that could do everything in the world, I played with it for a few days. And and a lot of the conversation between myself and my wife was, hey, 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 did you know it could do this? And then I'd show her. You know, and, and we would compare notes because she had one too, and it was this great game, and, and everything was amazing. But after a couple of days, we started noticing all the things it couldn't do. You know, this little tiny, you know, ice cream sandwich sized piece of technology that is greater than anything preceding it in history. And I said, But I can't save this setting. What? What? Stupid machine. We're told constantly that what we have is not enough. It is the primary message that we hear in the day. It's being shouted at us from all directions at all times. You are incomplete, and your life as it is, is insufficient. Here's the solution. It won't cost much. If you take advantage of this sale this weekend, your life will be complete at a bargain price. And you won't ever want for anything again until we start sending you email 
telling you about all the little things that you can get as an add-on. I was joking with someone the other day that if I even think about a red hat, Facebook starts trying to sell me red hats. It's very disturbing. And that device, that technology, and by the way, this is where we're putting our greatest minds, that technology is only going to become more seamless. Already, I doubt very many people growing up in this part of the world could say with any real confidence that they're sure that they know what they want or why they want it. The conversation around what you are supposed to want is just too loud. And separating yourself from that is like trying to to take your bones out of your body. Where does that message stop and where do you begin? So what I appreciate so much about this very simple paragraph is that it keeps it very, very simple. It doesn't say you need just enough to do this. It doesn't say get rid of everything. It says this is enough. And until you can say that, you will not be happy. Because until you can say that, you still believe that your life is lacking. This is not just about stuff. It's about relationships. It's about everything. You know, my marriage is really good, but if only we shared a few more hobbies, (laughs) then it would be really, really good. And there would be no more friction. (laughs) My job is great, but they really should pay me a little bit more. And until they do, I'm always going to feel this gap between what I'm doing and how I should be recognized. And we do this with spiritual practice as well. We sit and we think, well, but in the books they sit more. Or one day we don't sit and we think, oh, man, I can never get that back. Right? That's a deficit. Maybe I could sit twice as much tomorrow. But if it gets gets to be three or four days running, I'm going to have a serious, serious problem. But if you can sit and realize that this is sufficient 
right now, you've achieved something that very few people do. You've skipped a lot of steps. The Buddha continues, You can feel poor even if you have much wealth. You may be constantly pulled by the five sense desires and pitied by those who do know how much is enough. And I like this as well. If you really know, and this speaks very directly to me, because I was very excited, for example, about the Occupy movement that happened, and I I get really wound up about the 1% and about the income gap and income inequality, and I tend to depersonalize the people who are in that tiny minority. I make them non-human. I don't mean to do it. But I see them, they look like the, the guy on the cover of the Monopoly box. But with cold eyes. <laughs> and I see them driving by in long cars past people who are suffering and they feel nothing at all. They're very three-dimensional to me in that sense. They're very well-drawn villains. And this teaching in one sentence says, if that's how you think about those people, you don't get it yet. Because if you actually know how much is enough, you will feel sorry for them for not knowing. You will simply want for them to know what you know. And it finishes, as all of these, with, this is called to know how much is enough. As I said at the beginning, this is, this is about adulthood. It, it doesn't have to be about Buddhahood. And I'll give you an example from my own home, because it's uh, something I've been noticing recently, and I find it so bewildering. My children, who are five and almost three, have this habit now. It's relatively new. Maybe not, but it's new that we noticed it. That They'll eat everything that's on their plate, if we're lucky, and then they'll ask for more, and we'll very happily put more on their plate. And as soon as their plate is kind of full again, they'll say, I'm done. And they walk away. And this, this seems so odd to me because for me, and, and I grew up in a household where my, like my grandfather, there was always a pile of bread on the table so that whenever you finished everything else, you'd take a piece of bread and you'd sop everything up like a, like a sponge. So, and at the end, your plate would look pristine. It wasn't. And you could make a mistake and put it back in the cupboard. But it would be shiny when it was done. You know, there was a certain pride in leaving not one crumb on the plate. So for me, that's always been almost a game. You know, you, that's, that's the goal. Uh, which turned out to be a great fit with Zen. 
But, but my children need to know that they have abundance, right? It isn't for them about polishing their plate. It's about knowing that they have a surplus, right? And once they kind of get that hit of comfort from that, they're done. And again, when I use an example from a five-year-old or from a three-year-old, it's so transparently the mindset of a child. But I would, I guess that probably every single one of us has some analogous thing in our lives where we have to make sure that there's a little bit extra. Not that there's enough, but that there's just a little bit more than enough in order to feel that things are okay. I think this is one of the hardest things. I think we get glimpses if we're lucky. I always recommend it, you know, go camping. Anything that, that pulls the rug out from under you a little bit and you find that you're completely happy, maybe happy in a way that you haven't been, even though all the stuff you think you want is gone. We had a panic when we moved to Canada because we couldn't get phones. It's incredibly expensive if you're not Canadian. Uh, You have to have a credit history, and if you don't have a credit history, you have to put down, uh, I think for us it was going to be $1,400 to get a phone. So, but we had become quite used to having phones. And so we had this period of withdrawal when we got to Canada and we realized that we wouldn't have this thing. And maybe a month or six weeks into it, we both started saying how glad we were to not have phones, that it made everything better. We would be out on the street and it wouldn't occur to us to check anything except where we were because we couldn't do it. Now that's not to say that we don't check for Wi-Fi everywhere. That's a hard habit to break. But when we take things away, there's a great opportunity to find out that we didn't really need them and that maybe they were extra. Probably extra. Now stop there. For more information about Zen, our practice, and how you can support and take part in our community, please visit zennovascotia.com.